Romans chapter 12 again this morning. As believers in Jesus Christ, we have been shown an almost unfathomable, certainly hard to understand level of mercy from God. We were all at the same place in our lives. We were all sinners. We were all enemies before God, standing condemned before his absolute righteousness and his absolute holiness. But in his mercy, God made a provision for salvation for his enemies, those that stood as his enemies. And that provision was in the form of his son dying on a cross to pay the sentence of death that we had earned because of our sin. Accepting that provision, faith in the one who made that sacrifice is the only way that a man can be justified before a holy and righteous God. And having been justified, declared to be righteous before God, having accepted the gospel, we now stand no longer as enemies, but we are now reconciled to him. And and as those that have been reconciled to him, we now have a life to live for him. It's this life that we see when we come to Romans chapter 12, the sanctified life that we live for our Lord and Savior. Beginning in Romans chapter 12, we've come to the portion of the book where Paul talks about living the Christian life, expounding on the doctrine of sanctification that he had first introduced to us back in chapter 6 through chapter 8. As those who have put our faith and trust in the gospel, we have been raised to newness of life with Jesus Christ. Through the ministry of the Holy Spirit, we have been crucified with Christ, having died to sin, and have, we have been raised with him. We are now identified with him in every way. Paul went into the doctrinal details of this back when we were in chapter 6, and we reviewed that a bit in our last lesson. But that's not the only place that we see that in Scripture. Paul told the Galatians in chapter 2 of his letter to them, Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. Having been crucified with Christ, I can now say that it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. Paul tells the Corinthians some of that same truth. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 19, he says, Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own? For you have been bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body. You are not... You are not your own. You do not belong to you. You belong to God. Therefore, because of that, glorify God in your body. Your body should be used for the glory of God. In our last lesson, we looked at the first two verses of Romans chapter 12. And we saw the same thing. This is exactly where Paul was going here. He said in verse 1, Therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. We are to be presenting our bodies, these things in which we live, as a sacrifice to God, giving these bodies over to him to use in any way that he sees fit, submitting to him in our daily lives, setting ourselves apart for service to him. That is true worship, giving up of ourselves to him in our service to him. We now become his workers, his servants. Our mission is now no longer to serve ourselves, but to accomplish the work that he has for us here on earth. This is not something that results in our salvation. This is something that flows out of our salvation. Having already believed, already become saved, this is now the life that we are to live. And together, as those who come together in this local body, the church in which we function together, we are now called to not only live this way individually, as individuals in our own lives, but to function this way together as the body of Christ. 
This is the picture of the church, the picture of believers living their lives for Jesus Christ in service to him, caring about one another, loving one another, so that we can all serve him together. Why is this important to note? Why do we need to make mention of this? Because too often the church doesn't function in this way. Too often believers look for a church where they can be served instead of looking for a church where they can serve others. What are my opportunities to serve others in this church? Some people want a church where people pay attention to them, where they can go and sit and be happy that others are taking care of things and there's nothing that's expected of them to do. I want to get in. I want to hear a message or two. I want to be ministered to. I want to have my kids ministered to. And then I want to be able to just go about my merry way until next week when I can do it all over again. Too often believers don't get involved in each other's lives. They don't want to exhort or encourage someone because, you know, if I start talking to someone after the service, the lunch line at my favorite restaurant might get too long or I might not be able to find parking. Or we're getting into football season. I might miss the start of a game. They, want, they don't want to rebuke someone in error because that could get messy. It's really none of my business. They don't want to sign up to make a meal for someone because they don't want to spend the time. These attitudes are not the picture of the body of Christ. This is not the picture of believers living their lives for the Lord. This is not the sacrificial living that Paul is talking about, starting here in Romans chapter 12. As the children of God, we are to function in submission to our Lord. And along with submission comes a level of humility that we need to understand and we need to embrace, a willingness to put others ahead of ourselves all for the glory of God. How is this brought about? Well, there's two things that Paul said in, in verse 2 of Romans 12. We saw them last time. He said, we are not to be conformed to this world. We are not to allow the world to shape and mold us to look like what it wants and what it values. But we are to be transformed by the renewing of our minds, which is accomplished through our studying of the Word of God and the Holy Spirit who indwells us, working to use the knowledge that we gain in order to sanctify us. The Holy Spirit gives us understanding into the Word, and He allows us to use that in our lives to glorify Him. We know how to live. We know how to act and behave as believers, how to do what is good and acceptable and perfect because of what God has revealed in His Word. That's how we find that out. This book tells us all that we need to know about living the Christian life and serving in the local body. And by studying it, the Holy Spirit transforms our minds. They are changed from the inside out, making us more and more Christ-like every day, allowing us to live this sanctified life. As we come to verse 3 in Romans chapter 12, Paul is going to start into the areas of living of our service, pulling up examples of these things. And he starts close to home. He starts with the area of serving within the church. Specifically, we're going to be talking about the area of spiritual gifts, the abilities that believers have been given for the purpose of edifying and building up members of the body. As we go through these verses, keep in mind that we're talking about being sacrificial in our service. Ways in which we can give of ourselves in our service to the Lord, and that includes our service to one another. And this is what we see starting in verse 3, and it continues down through verse 8. And Lord willing, those are the verses that we're going to be looking at today. So verse 3, Paul starts off by saying, for through the grace given to me, he just uses this phrase here, and he starts off this subject, and, he's, and we're going to see that we're talking about spiritual gifts, we start off this subject by Paul exercising the authority that he has in his own spiritual gift, the or grace gift from God, through the grace given to me. He's going to issue a command to these Roman believers that is founded upon his own gift of being an apostle of Jesus Christ. 
all of God's dealings with his children are based on grace and not on merit. We don't earn anything that God gives us. God gives to us freely. All that we have in him has been given to us freely. So here, grace, uh, the grace that Paul is referring to is specifically that of his gift of being an apostle. He's basically using himself as an example of what he's going to be talking about. I'm going to exercise my gift to tell you how you should be using your gifts. When introducing the letter back in chapter 1, he talked about his own gift. Look back, flip back to chapter 1 with me for a minute. In verse 5, when he was introducing himself, he says, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith among all the Gentiles for his name's sake. Here in this introduction, in his introduction, Paul is referring to his gift of being an apostle, his apostleship, which was brought about through grace. Paul was called to serve God as an apostle. That was the spiritual gift that God had given to him. One he was one sent as a representative of God. The apostles were the ones that were given special authority by God in the early church. They had seen the risen Christ. They were given new revelation by God, and they were given the ability to perform signs and wonders to validate that ministry. Those were all things that were true of the apostles. I'm just going to go out and tell you, apostles are not around today. They ended back in that first century. But Paul was one that was given that gift. He mentions it again at the end of the letter. Turn back to chapter 15 of Romans. Getting ahead of ourselves, but we'll get there in due time. Chapter 15, look at verse 15. He's saying, as he's concluding the letter, but I have written very boldly to you on some points so as to remind you again because of the grace that was given me from God to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles, ministering as a priest the gospel of God so that my offering of the Gentiles may become acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. God gave him grace to be a minister to the Gentiles. Again, this was all part of that apostolic office that Paul held. We won't look at these other passages, but you can jot down a couple other places where he mentions this. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 10. He says there, according to the grace of God which was given to me, like a wise master builder, I laid a foundation and another is building on it, but each man must be careful how he builds on it. Again, the grace of God which was given to him. Ephesians chapter 3, verses 7 and 8. He says, the gospel of which I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given to me according to the working of his power. To me, the very least of all saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unfathomable riches of Christ. Paul had been given a gift by God, a gift to serve him, a gift that he faithfully utilized in his ministry. And as such... He proved himself to be an example of what he's about to tell these Roman believers. He's utilizing that gift in order to instruct them here and instruct us. So having this gift of his own, what does Paul do? He employs it, he employs it here to instruct them. It's through this grace that he says next, I say to everyone among you not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think, but to think so as to have sound judgment. I say, this is his word of authority. This is a command from Paul, the one who was sent from God. And whom does he address? Certain ones, the leaders, every man among you, he says. Listen up, everyone. This is for everyone to hear. Every believer in the church in Rome specifically here, and it would, of course, include us as well. This is instruction for us. What are we to do, or what are we not to do? The gist of Paul's command here involves the way that we think. Now remember how he started off the chapter. We talked about this in detail last time. In verse 1, we talked about our true worship, and that's related to having the proper mind or the proper attitude. When we serve, when we use our bodies for worship, we engage our minds 
It's thought out. In verse 2, he talked about our minds being renewed. We are thinking a different way through the transforming work of the Holy Spirit. There is a thought process involved. We do not serve just going through the motions, just because this is what we've always done. We think through our service to the Lord. So now in verse 3, we see how this process should affect the way that we think. It is built here, what he says here is built on wordplay that doesn't always translate over in English, depending on your translation. The form of the Greek word think is used four times in this verse. Some translations do a better job than others to get them all listed out here. But we have think highly, think, think, and then there's sound thinking. So what we really have is not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think, but to think so as to have sound thinking. And this thinking that's in view here is first given as a, this is how we don't think. And then it's given as, this is how we do think. So what are we not to do? Think more highly of ourselves than we ought to think. We are not to think too highly of ourselves. Now this is one area where the Bible, I mean, there's many areas, but this is one area where the Bible and the world differ greatly. You probably realize that, but it all comes back to what we saw in the previous verses with the conformity to the world and the transformation to be more Christ-like. When we looked last week at 2 Timothy chapter 3, we looked at that long list of things that Paul tells Timothy that men will be like in the last days. We saw that one of the signs of one who is in the world, one of the things in that list is that they are lovers of self. The world says today, that's a great thing. You should love yourself. We need to love ourselves more. We need to esteem ourselves. We need to build ourselves up. That's what the, that's what the world tells us. But it shouldn't be a surprise. That's not what the Bible says. What does the Bible say? Look with me over at Ephesians chapter 5. We'll look at a couple, couple of other passages here. Ephesians chapter 5, in verse 25, through the end of the chapter, Paul is comparing the husband and wife relationship. He's talking about husbands and wives and their relationship to one another. And he compares it with the relationship between Christ and the church. Christ sacrificed himself for the church, willingness to give up anything and everything for the church. And as part of that comparison, part of that analogy, he says in verse 28 of Ephesians 5, so husbands ought also to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself. Well, there we go. We see right here, he's talking about me loving myself. Well, yes, but not in the way that the world wants us to think. Look at what he goes on to say in verse 29. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ also does the church. You see, he's not saying this is how you can love yourself. No, he's saying no one ever hated himself. We all know how to love ourselves already. We don't need any help knowing how to love ourselves. We love ourselves with no problem. And in his example here, the idea is that you ought to love your wife. As a husband, you ought to love your wife the way that you already love yourself. That's the example in a way that you would do anything and everything for her. You see, the world says that people have a self-esteem problem. And I would agree. People do have a self-esteem problem. The problem is that we esteem ourselves too much. We think too highly of ourselves. But how should we think of ourselves? What does the Bible really say about this? Turn over with me to Philippians chapter 2. Once again, shouldn't surprise us, the Bible disagrees with that attitude. In the first two verses of Philippians 2, Paul talks about how we ought to be united in mind, having the same mind, intent on one purpose. He's really talking about within the church, which is what we're talking about in Romans 12 as well. Well, how can we have that kind of unity in purpose? Look at verse 3. Do nothing from selfishness, or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, 
regard one another as more important than yourselves. Once again, that flies in the face of what the world tells us today. Regard others as more important than myself. That sounds crazy today. And yet, that's how we are to act. He says down through the following verses that this is the same manner as Jesus Christ acted towards us. He is our example. And remember, it's his image that we are being transformed into. It all comes down to having a proper focus, a proper self-image. And back in Romans 12, Paul says, don't think more highly of yourself than you ought to think. But what should we do? What's the alternative? But to think so as to have sound judgment or sound thinking. Sound thinking, sober thinking, right thinking, sane thinking are all words that you could throw in there for this. We are to have sound minds, sensible thinking. This word for sound thinking, it's one word, it's a compound word, it's used in Luke chapter 8. And that's the account of a demon-possessed man that comes out to meet Christ. And if you remember, he was naked and crazy and people were afraid of him. They were terrified of this guy. And the word is used after the demons have been cast out. The demons are cast out of him. And in Luke 8, 35, it says, The people went out to see what had happened. And they came to Jesus and found the man from whom the demons had gone out, sitting down at the feet of Jesus, clothed and in his right mind. And they became frightened. This is used for the distinction between being insane and being sane, being in his right mind. Here in Romans chapter 12, we are not to think highly of ourselves, esteem ourselves, puff ourselves up. We are instead to think rationally, be sane thinkers. Thinking in light of the grace of God that is working in our lives. Thinking of the mercy that he has bestowed upon us, recognizing that all that I am and all that I do should be for his glory, not for my glory. Not because of me, but because of him. That is sensible thinking. That is sound thinking. And as we come to the end of verse 3, we see the reason for this. Why are we not to think highly of ourselves? Why do we not puff ourselves up? He says, as God has allotted to each a measure of faith. Because this is what God has done for each believer. There has been allotted a measure of faith. Who we are now is because of what God has done for us, not because of anything within us. As he's talking about sacrificial service, the first place that Paul is moving us into here is an area of spiritual gifts. These are special gifts that are given by God through the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit to each and every believer within the church. And we'll see that as we go through here, but it's important that we understand that right up front with these. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, you have a spiritual gift. A spiritual gift is not for special believers. It is not for certain class of VIP believers. It is not for high-functioning believers. It's not for any other special group of believers. A spiritual gift is given to a believer, period. If you have believed the gospel, then you have the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit within you, and you have a spiritual gift that you are to use in service to the church. That's what Paul is talking about here. It is in light of these gifts that Paul makes this statement about sound thinking. Because of what you have been given, and we saw previously that Paul referred to his own gift as grace that was given, because of this, you have sound thinking. You are to think rationally, sanely. This again is engaging our minds in our service and in our worship. Using our gifts as God intended, not for personal glory, but for his glory. He says a measure of faith has been given here. And I would take this to be similar to the given grace that Paul mentioned about himself. And we'll, we'll see him make that connection again when we get down to verse 6. 
But there is a certain stewardship of faith that is specifically and uniquely given to a child of God. We have been given faith in accordance with the use of our gifts. Faith to use our gifts faithfully in his service. He's not talking about saving faith here. That's not what he means. This is the daily faith that we continually employ in our service and in our Christian walk, right? A Christian is one that has placed his faith and trust in Jesus Christ for salvation, but we live our lives faithfully with faith in God each and every day. We trust him continually in various ways in our, very, in our daily lives and obediently utilize the gifts that he's given us to serve him. So with this idea of, of measure, this word for measure, it's an indication that there's a variety of the gifts given. There's levels to this. Some are able to do some, others are able to do more. Not everyone functions the same. But the first thing to note here is to whom this measure of faith is given. Once again, it's not special believers, it's to each. In fact, in this phrase that we have here, this word comes first in the Greek language. And if you know anything about the Greek language, you put emphasis on an idea in a sentence by putting it earlier in the sentence. And the first thing that he mentions here is to each. To every believer, this measure of faith has been given. And that's exactly what I was mentioning before. It means that there isn't a believer in Jesus Christ that hasn't received some kind of spiritual gift. That doesn't have some ability given to them by the Holy Spirit to serve and function within the church. I stress this because oftentimes people use the excuse, I'm not good at anything. I don't have any special talents or abilities. I have nothing to offer. That is simply not true. God has allotted to you a spiritual gift. He has specially gifted you in some way in some area. There are no exceptions to this. Everyone who has placed their faith and trust in Jesus Christ has been given the ability to contribute to the local body to which they belong in some way. You all that attend here, everyone here, I don't know if we have any guests here, but I'm talking to those that attend here on a regular basis, which is the majority of you, have a spiritual gift that is intended to be used in this church. Turn over to the book of 1 Corinthians with me. 1 Corinthians is the most complete discussion that we have on spiritual gifts. Um, the main passages when you're talking about spiritual gifts to go to are 1 Corinthians 12, Romans 12, Ephesians 4, and 1 Peter 4 um, are the main ones. There might be something else scattered in there, but those are the main ones that we talk about. But 1 Corinthians 12 is the most extensive on them. And here we see really a similar statement made in verse 7. He says, but to each one, 1 Corinthians 12, 7, but to each one is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. The manifestation of the Spirit, this is the same thing that he's talking about here. This is a spiritual gift, and it's given to whom? To each one, he says. Down in verse 11, but one and the same Spirit works all these things, distributing to each one individually just as he wills. Just as he wills, to each one, the determination is made by God. He gives you what gifts he desires you to have. Verse, down in verse 18, we see that again. But now God has placed the members, each one of them, in the body, just as he desired. As we become saved, we are given the gifts that God desires us to have, and he determines how we can best serve him. That's his determination. Now, some people want to say, or some people say they don't have a gift, but many times what they mean is that they either don't know what their gift is, or, or worse than that, they don't have the gift that they want. And that's just, they just don't think, well, that's just not an area that I want to serve in. That's not where I want to be serving. This again comes down to the reasonable and sound thinking that we are to have in our service. Some people chase after specific gifts, and they won't consider anything else. Some people simply don't do enough to find out what their gift might be, and they just assume that they don't have one because they have the wrong attitude about service. But I don't know what my gift is. 
Some people say, I don't know what my gift is. Well, you might not. And it's okay if you don't know what your gift is, but you need to be trying to find out what your gift is. What's not okay is sitting back and not knowing what you're gifted in and then just throwing up your hands and say, well, I'm just not going to do anything because I don't want to serve in the wrong area or I don't know what it is. If you don't know your gift, I would encourage you to get involved. Start serving. Serve in different ways. Serve in different areas. Try an area that you've never even thought of before. Keep going until you find what it is that you're good at, what you have an ability to do. It may not be what you expect. It may not be what you have a natural aptitude for. Because remember, this is a spiritual gift, something that you have been uniquely enabled to do by the Holy Spirit. It doesn't necessarily match up with a natural gift that you have. It might, but it doesn't have to. I've heard people before talk about teaching and they say they could never be a teacher because they're scared to death to speak in public. I cannot speak in front of a crowd of people. You know what? I'm one of those people. All my life, I was terrified of standing in front of a group of people and talking to them. That terrified me. And yet this is what God has gifted me to do. This is where I truly believe the Holy Spirit has gifted me to serve this body. But the first time I tried it, I was absolutely terrified. But I got through it. It's just as soon forget that first lesson. I remember it very well, actually. I'll bet the people that heard it remember it very well, too, because I don't think it was very good. I remember where I was sitting in the room. I remember whose apartment I was in. I remember all these things. I remember that I took a it was Psalm 34, and I took that psalm word by word, teaching through the entire psalm. It was horrible. It was horrible. I think I taught for an hour and a half. Didn't even, didn't even look at the clock. But the more I did it, the easier it became. The better it got, and I found that I had a burden to share the things that I was studying with other people. The point is, if God has given us a gift, and we know that he has, that's what Paul is saying here in Romans 12, that's what he said in 1 Corinthians 12, then we need to find out what that gift is and so that we can use it to glorify him. And that's really what Paul is getting at here in this section. Now in the next two verses, he uses an analogy, an analogy of how the body of Christ should work together, just as our bodies work together in their parts. Right? He says in verse 4, For just as we have many members in one body, and all the members do not have the same function, so we who are many are one body in Christ, and individually members one of another. So what he's talking about here, he's, he's mentioning the, the, diver, the diversity of the gifts here. Thinking about our physical bodies, right? using the example of our physical body, they are diverse in the sense that we're comprised of many parts. Because, but all of those parts function together in a unified way, right? To accomplish whatever it is that the head wants to accomplish, right? If I want to go out to my car, I have to employ my body to get there, right? I don't just instantly get there. I have to employ the members of my body to get there. And the members of my body all have different functions to get there. My feet have to move, my legs have to move my feet, I have to use my hands to open the door. I need to use my eyes to watch where I'm going. I need to go down the stairs. All these things have to occur for me to get out to my car. And those are just the visible external things, the showy things, the things that I can see. My lungs have to be working. If my lungs stopped working halfway between here and there, I wouldn't get to my car. If my heart stopped working, my veins stopped moving blood around, I don't get to my car. Everything in my body works together to accomplish a single purpose, the purpose that it was designed for. When do things break down? When my feet decide that they would rather have the hands job. Then I have trouble. If my feet decide I don't want to be feet anymore, I like what the hands do. I want to do what the hands do. That doesn't work. I can't function that way. Why? Because that's not how my body was designed. 
There may be times when I need to pick up something off the floor and my hands are full, so if you know, don't have shoes on, I can pick up something with my toes, right? Or I can hold a pen in my mouth, or I can stick something under my arm that's not normal, that's not usual. But by and large, this is not how these parts of my body are meant to function. This is the picture that we are presented with here. We in this church are the body of Christ. He is the head, we are the body. We are his hands, we are his feet, we are his legs. We are here to function for him in the manner in which he has gifted us, placed us into this body. Maybe your gift isn't as flashy as someone else's. Maybe it's not something that people see, and maybe that's something that you don't like. You know, my feet aren't as prominent as my hands, right? I stand up here each and every week. I flap my hands around. You all know what my hands look like. I'll bet there's hardly anybody in this room that have any idea what my feet look like. You've never seen my feet. You don't know that you know you're assumedly there, but you don't know what they look like, but you know what my hands look like. But are they any less useful? I wouldn't be standing here in front of you without my feet, right? Maybe your gift is behind the scenes. Maybe your gift is done when no one else is around. No one else can see what you do. But you know what? I have never seen my heart. Never have I seen my heart. Not one time. I'm kind of glad. I don't think I want to see my heart. If I'm seeing my heart, that probably means there's something seriously wrong, right? But I have never seen it in action, but I am sure glad that it's there. And I am sure glad that it's functioning the way that it needs to be functioning. The many of us in this church are all to function together. We do it in different ways, but we are to do it together. We are one body in Christ and individually members one of another. This is the way in which the church is to function, unified as members of one body. So as we come to verse 6, what we're going to see here is Paul taking this concept and he's going to specifically mention some of the gifts that are given to the church and how this applies to the use of these gifts. Now, what we need to realize is that this is some. This is not a complete list that he gives here. We could, we could go to other parts of Scripture and look at all of the gifts, but we're not going to do that. I'm not going to spend a lot of time even on these individual gifts, mostly because it's not Paul's point here to really explain the gifts and their functions. He really presents them here more to show what our attitude ought to be while serving with them, regardless of what gift you have. You are to use it with a proper attitude, with sound thinking. So he starts off verse 6 with a qualifying statement of how God gives these gifts. And he says in verse 6, Since we have gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, each of us is to exercise them accordingly. The word for gifts, we haven't really talked about this, but it's the word for charisma or charismata. It's the word for grace. These are grace gifts. They have been freely given to us by God, not earned or merited in any way. God gives them freely. We saw this with Paul's own gift of apostleship. It was given to him by grace. Remember, we talked about it, saw several verses on that. It wasn't the gift that he asked for. Paul wasn't seeking to be an apostle. You may remember his, his conversion on the road to Damascus. He wasn't even seeking to be saved, right? God saved him anyway. But he wasn't seeking to be an apostle, but God says, that's what you're going to be. You're an apostle to the Gentiles. It was given to him by the grace of God. This is the way it is with all spiritual gifts. Not exactly the same as Paul on the road to Damascus, but, but it's the same way in the sense that they are all freely given to us by God. He is the one who decides who gets what. Again, 1 Corinthians 12, 11, but, the, but one in the same spirit works all these things, distributing to each one individually just as he wills. Gifts are given according to how he wills, not how we will. It's not something we petition for. There is a unity in the gifts. Each one of his children are gifted, but there's also diversity. We are gifted individually. That's what Paul is getting at in Romans 12, 6. Each have gifts, but they differ according to the grace given. So my gift is not the same as your gift. 
your gift isn't the same as someone else's gift. Now, the, the gifts differ in kind. There's different kinds or types of gifts. We aren't all teachers. We aren't all exhorters. We aren't all leaders. Those are some of the ones he's going to mention here in a minute. If you go back to the body analogy, right? Not every part of my body is a hand. I'm not made up of all hands. I have hands, but I have different parts that do different things. But that's not the only way that they differ. Gifts differ in degree as well, even within the same gift. Not every person with the same gift uses them the same way, right? Again, with my body, I have two hands, but I'm right-handed. So my right hand functions much differently than the way that my left hand functions. I use my right hand differently than I use my left hand, even though there are similarities between them. So this goes back to that measure of faith that we saw back in verse 3. We aren't all given the same abilities even to function within the same gifts. We are given the amount of faith, the ability, what we need to accomplish the gift that God has allotted to us, what he has given to us. We have many men in our church that teach. The way I teach you each week is very, is very similar, but not exactly the same to the way that others teach, right? Todd, Todd teaches, he teaches different than the way that I do. Toby, when he comes in here, there's differences in the way that he teach. Josh teaches each and every week. He does not teach the same way that I do. When it comes to the grace given to me, what God has given me to do, I have the grace that I need to stand here in front of, I don't know, I'm terrible with numbers, 30, 40 people, however many people we have here. So that's what I do. I stand here and teach you. Some people who have the gift of teaching stand in front of thousands of people each week. And they teach thousands of people. They've been given the grace to do that. I don't know if I could stand up in front of thousands of people. I've never done it. But that's not what God has given me to do. He's given me what I need to function here. Praise God for his grace in freely gifting us in the way that he has deemed necessary for this body. Now it goes with other gifts as well. Service. We don't have our own building here, right? This is not our own building, right? But I've been in churches and probably all of you have been in the same boat, right? Where you might have like people that, that work in the building, cleaning ministries, for instance, within a building. We don't have that need here, right? This is not our building. We don't need that. Hopefully, Lord willing, someday we will need that. But that's not necessary here. But we have other areas. Gifted evangelists, people that are specifically gifted with the gift of evangelism. Some uproot their lives and go to foreign countries and become missionaries. Some function with that gift right here. Go out in their neighborhood each and every day, each and every week, or whatever, and function right here at home. The point is we've all been gifted, but to different degrees and in different ways. How do they differ? According to the grace given. Again, God's grace. He has determined how you've been gifted and how you should use your gift. From here, Paul is going to go on to give us this list of some of the gifts. But again, the main point here isn't to necessarily identify the gifts or to stress their place in the church. But the point is to show these Roman believers and us by extension, the proper way in which we are to use the gifts that have been given, regardless of what that gift may be. It's for this reason that some translators have included the phrase, let each exercise them accordingly. Maybe your translation has that in there. Um, that phrase doesn't actually appear in the original text, but some translators have taken the liberty of including it as a natural progression of what Paul is getting at here. I don't normally like it when they do that, but in this case, I think it helps bring out the proper idea. What he's saying is because of the differing gifts that we have been given according to grace, let's use them in the proper way. And he shows the proper way with each of the gifts that he lists. And again, we're not going to spend a lot of time here, but we'll get through it at the end. But he starts off with prophecy. If prophecy according to the proportion of his faith, he says. So he starts with the gift of prophecy. Now, this was a primary gift for speaking forth the word of God in the early church. It was, the, it was a gift that some had been given to give forth revelation from God. Now, when we hear the word prophecy, just when you think of prophets, hear the word prophecy, we almost always think of it as referring to, oh, that's, that's saying something that's going to happen in the future. That's proclaiming something that's going to happen in the future. And that's true. God used prophets to 
to reveal things that were going to happen in the future. But prophecy simply means to speak forth, speak forth from someone else. In the context of the church, as well as the Old Testament prophets, it was speaking forth from God, being his mouthpiece. My understanding of the gift of prophecy is that it was a gift that's no longer, that it's a gift that's no longer here today. It was necessary in the early church prior to the completion of the New Testament writings for God to equip the church through the individuals that had this gift, right? Not every church had a copy of all the letters. Not all the letters had been written at certain times. But there would be prophets in each church that would be able to communicate something from God. There are some who identify it somewhat differently and say that the gift isn't gone and they say that this is now just synonymous with preaching. So they would say that, that when, when pastors preach, they're utilizing the gift of prophecy. They would say that the direct revelation portion of it has ceased, but that there is still an element of it that still exists, and that's what's, again, used by pastors when they preach a message. The important distinction is that however you define it, it needs to be understood that there is no gift around today where new revelation is being given by God. That ended with the completion of the New Testament. But whichever way you look at it, this gift would have been around during the time that Paul wrote this. In fact, it was one of the prominent gifts. He lists in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 that, that first apostles, then prophets, then teachers were given. It's kind of a ranking of the gifts, so it was a very important gift. And so he's emphasizing here the way in which someone is to be exercising it as a gift that was still around. Now, one with this gift was to do it according to the faith that was given to him. And that amount of faith has to do with the ministry that God has given him to do. This is the, the, the degree or the measure of faith that we talked about before. One prophet may have been given a higher measure of faith than someone else, a higher, a higher responsibility with it than someone else. One person may have something that they stand up and say for two minutes. Another one may speak for two hours. In either case, he is to function according to the maximum that God has allotted him. If you were to be given the opportunity to preach, to prophesy every day, proclaim God's word every day. If you were given the opportunity once a week or once a month, proclaim it then. The point is to be faithful with what God has given and to keep your focus in ministry to the area that God has gifted you. That's where your primary focus should be. In the next one, verse 7, he talks about service and serving. Service is a rather general gift, right? Sometimes people look at service as the catch-all. Well, if I don't have any other gift, it must be service. That's just the, the kind of the idea. And I think it is kind of a broad category, but it's an area in which everyone needs to be involved in some degree. But there are some that are spiritually gifted in this area. We usually recognize them. This is how I think of it. We usually recognize the people that have the gift of service as the ones that make the rest of us feel bad because they're the ones going around doing everything. And you kind of look around and you go, man, maybe I should be pitching in. Maybe I should be doing something. Maybe I should be helping out with something. And that's actually a good thing because they can lead the rest of us by example. If you feel bad because you see somebody else serving when you're not, that's a good thing. I'm going to go out and say that's a good thing. Then you should do something about that. If you have been gifted in service, then that is where you're primarily to be spending your time using this gift. Functioning in your serving. This is the area in which you are to focus, to do what needs to be done. He mentions next, or he who teaches in his teaching. And this is where the teacher's primary focus is to be, in the work that he has as a teacher of God's word. Doesn't mean that he doesn't function in any other way. None of these gifts doesn't mean that we don't pitch in or that we can't do something else from time to time. But this is his primary role. If this is his gift, this is where his primary focus should be. That's the whole point, really, that, that Paul's bringing out here with all of these. The gifts differ. We have been given different gifts. We are all to use them according to what we've been gifted to do. That should be our primary area of ministry. It's like we talked about with the body analogy, right? My hand 
has to let my foot do the walking to do what it's supposed to do with a foot my, while my hand concentrates on being a hand. Now, if I fall down and break my leg, then sure, I might need to pull myself across the floor. My hands might have to do something else, but that's because part isn't working, right? When my feet do what they're supposed to do, it frees up my hands to do what they're supposed to be doing. In the same way, the teacher maximizes his effectiveness to those in the church by focusing his time and efforts on his teaching, preparing, studying, teaching. Being able to devote the majority of our time in the areas in which we've been gifted. That's what makes the church effective. Verse 8, or he who exhorts in his exhortation. If exhortation is what God has graciously gifted you to do, then that's what you are to be doing, exhorting people. This one has an idea of coming alongside someone, encouraging, comforting, admonishing. All of those things would fall within this gift. Too often, churches function with a small group of people doing everything, and the rest just getting by, coming and going, not doing any of the work that's necessary. That's not God's plan for the church. That's not how the local body is to function. The body should be composed of everyone utilizing their gifts in different ways to accomplish things in different areas, all for the purpose of building up the entire body in love. The exhorter plays a big role in this because they're usually the one that can spur people on into serving when they should. Calls them like he sees them. The exhorter has the ability to not only call someone out, but also to spur them to action, to help bring them along, encourage them to do what they should be doing. He who gives with liberality. There are some who have been specially gifted in the area of giving. One who is gifted in giving should focus in that area. Again, doesn't mean that other people don't do this. We all give. But there are some people that are specially gifted in it. 2 Corinthians 8.3, Paul praises the Macedonian churches for giving in abundance, giving beyond their ability. God specifically gifts some with an ability in this area. And the other thing is, just because we say, oh, there's some with the gift of giving, that frees me up. No, it doesn't. No. That's not how that works. Just because someone else is gifted in it doesn't mean that you shouldn't be giving. Everyone should be giving. But the one that giving has this gift, they can lead by example. They give sacrificially. They give liberally. They give joyfully. And they give in a way sometimes that makes other people ask, are they crazy? How can they do that? How can they, how can they give that much? Giving a little or giving a lot isn't what's important, but giving sacrificially with liberality is the key in this. He who leads with diligence. Churches sometimes have one of two problems. Many people want to lead or no one wants to lead. And it's equally a problem, either one that they have. There are those within each church that God has specially gifted to lead. And those people need to be the ones stepping up to do it with diligence. This is one of those areas where if this is your gift, you need to find that out because you need to be functioning in this area. The church needs people that leads, that lead. That might mean that they lead in a certain ministry, or it might mean that at some point they take on the role of elder, or maybe they start with an area of ministry and then later on they become an elder. But the point is God has gifted some to hold those positions of leadership within the church. And those that are gifted in it have that drive where they cannot quit. They cannot give up. They are to have that diligence in doing it. At times, people want the prestige of leadership, mostly because they just want to be seen. They just want to, and this isn't everybody. I'm not saying it's everybody, but there are some people that do that, right? They want that prestige. They want to be seen. But then when the going gets tough, when things get hard, they don't want the follow through. They don't want the responsibility. That's not why God gifts some of us in his church to be leaders, to quit at the first sign of difficulty. So the one who does this, the one who has this gift, does it with diligence, shows themselves that they have a giftedness in it. And the last example he uses here, he who shows mercy with cheerfulness. This is an ability to show compassion on those who are going through trials. Come alongside someone with aid and comfort in that respect. Cheerfulness is vital, essential for this gift. 
to spend your time bringing encouragement to those who are going through hard times. Seems like I'm always dealing with people that have problems. That's what I do. I, people have problems and I come alongside them. We all know how difficult those times can get. And, and if you're someone that tries to come along someone and it just makes you depressed yourself, that's not very helpful to not feel, start to feel the burden of the bad things that are happening to people. That is a gift indeed, to have cheerfulness when you're dealing with people that are struggling with other issues. Those that have the gift of mercy have the ability to always be cheerful, always be encouraging, always be able to be able and willing to meet the needs of those who are in trouble that have problems. To not merely, I mean, it's not merely in an, ob an obligation that they are fulfilling, they are doing it with joy. I grew up around that. I have a special appreciation for this gift because I grew up around this gift. My, my mom has this gift. And I remember as a kid, she would visit her ladies. She would call them her ladies in the nursing home. I have to go visit my ladies today in the nursing homes. And they were various people that came to be her friends, some who had debilitating illnesses. And she would visit them regularly. She would go shopping for them. She would feed them. Sometimes she would take them to the bathroom. And I oftentimes, times think of the things that I've, I've seen or I've known her to do when she did this, and she's not alone. There are many that have this gift. And I stand amazed at what God has gifted them to do. I never heard any complaints or unkind words from her about any of it. It's a gift that needs cheerfulness associated with it. So in all of these gifts, there are specific ways that Paul lays out here that they are to be used, and each of them is to be used. These are all needed and necessary within the church. And again, there's other gifts. We're not taking the time to go through all the gifts, but there's other gifts, but this is just a sampling of them. God doesn't leave a church without a degree of the gifts that are needed in that church. You understand, service in the Christian life, it's not optional. Serving within the church is not optional. That's why immediately after telling us how we are to present our bodies as a living, holy, and acceptable sacrifice to God, he talks about how we are to use the gifts that God has graciously given us. This is our responsibility. It's a way in which God intends for his children to function in the church body. God doesn't gift us to serve at home or to serve our families. We have responsibilities with our families, but our gifts are given for the common good to build up the body of Christ. And we've all been gifted in some way. The question then becomes, well, what do I do? How do I serve? That's an area that we all have to figure out, but we can't give up on it. You know, I've been in churches before. I think every church goes through this where they say, you know what, we need somebody, we need help in this area. Let's put out a call. Let's see if we can get somebody to help in this area. How amazing would it to be for people to say, you know what, we've got too many people that are signing up for this stuff. We've got too many people serving in the nursery. We've, I don't know what to do with them all. How amazing would that be if that was the problem that we struggled with in our church? Paul says here, we need to realize that we are not to think of ourselves too highly, to think that we are too good, too important, too busy with our own lives to feel like we have no time or no obligation to serve within our church body. I'm glad that my right hand doesn't ever have the attitude, eh, he's got another hand. What does he need me for? He's, uh, he's got that other guy. He's over there all the time. He doesn't need me to do anything. I'm glad that my foot doesn't do that. I'm glad one of my lungs doesn't do that. Now, when the members of the body, the church body, just like with our physical body, when they don't all function together as we've been gifted to do, then the whole body suffers. Then this body isn't functioning as God intends it to function. It's my prayer that we won't be crippling this body of believers by not serving. That we'll all be functioning selflessly, putting each other first and falling over each other to build up our fellow believers all for the glory of God. Let's close in a word of prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we just come to you and we thank you, Lord, for just the grace that you give us each and every day. We thank you, Lord, for, first of all, for our salvation. We thank you for providing your son to die on the cross for our sins. We thank you, Lord, for the faith that you have given us in order to believe that and put our faith and trust in that.
And Lord, we thank you for our role here in this body. We pray, Lord, that we would be functioning to serve you each and every day. We pray, Lord, that we would be putting each other ahead of ourselves, that we would be thinking of ourselves in the proper way, and that we would be functioning to edify one another, to encourage one another, Lord, and to build each other up so that we can go out of here and that we can glorify you with everything that we do each and every day. We thank you, Lord, for the gifts that you've given us. We thank you for the way that that you intend for us to live, and we pray, Lord, that we would be faithful in following you and serving you and obeying you in all that we do. Pray, Lord, now as we go into the next hour, as Josh brings us the word, we just pray, Lord, that you would help us to understand uh, more from the Gospel of John, and pray, Lord, that we'd be able to take the truths that we learn here today and use them to glorify and honor you. Lord, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.